Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, The Voice of the Community. And welcome to the Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites, our weekly look at our food, farming, energy, and the environment that we do every week here on the Mark Steiner Show. Uh, and we are joined right now by Corey Ramson, who is Program Director of the Maryland Solar United Neighborhoods, and Tim Judson, who is Executive Director of Nuclear Information Resource Service working for a nuclear-free world, and he'll be doing a workshop at the Solar Congress coming up this weekend, which we're about to talk about, and about the future of solar energy in this country, and more specifically in the state of Maryland. Gentlemen, welcome. Good to have you with us. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Mark. And folks, do join us at 410-319-8888. You can uh, send us an email to talk at steinershow.org. You can uh, tweet us at Mark Steiner, but 410-319-8888. Corey, so let's just start. I just... Um, but let's talk about the Congress coming up this weekend first. Yeah, thank you, and thanks for having us. Yeah. The Congress, it's actually on the 15th of October. 15th, so not this weekend, uh, two weekends. Yeah, Saturday the 15th right. from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. in Annapolis at the Annapolis Friends Meeting. And uh, it's going to be a good crowd. going to have uh, about a uh, little under 100 people there. There's still space available. And folks interested in registering can uh, do that at mdsun.org slash solar-congress. We're getting folks together and uh, talking about solar for a couple hours on Saturday. So what are you going to be talking about? What is it about? What, what, what are the issues you're going to be raising in these workshops? Right. Well, so Maryland Sun, as an organization, we're a movement of people who are uh, taking control of their energy and doing that by installing solar and generating their own electricity. So this is going to be a discussion of a variety of different solar topics for people from Solar 101 all the way up to some detailed topics about the grid of the future. So I, I do want to talk about the grid of the future, and uh, and 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 a bit about the workshop you're you, you're running there as as well, Tim. But I, so we hear a lot about putting solar in people's homes individually around the state. So what is that? I mean, and I, I people say, you know, that is is what does it take? What does it cost? How real is it for most people in the state to be able to afford that? And what would it mean if they did it? Solar in Maryland is becoming more and more popular, and really all over the country. Um, the one of the things that we do is organize bulk purchases to help people do solar in groups. That generally generates a discount of about 10 to 20% for homeowners. But uh, even without that process, it's a very reasonable way to go solar. There's financing available for people. Uh, they can uh, finance it so that they don't even have to pay anything up front if they want to do that over a long term. Or they can uh, invest up front and get more of that economic savings over the life of the system. But I mean, so the question is, I mean, I'm curious, how viable is that? I mean, in other words, I mean, I. I know that in your work, for a nuclear-free f- future also means no coal, I would imagine, as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? actually, I mean, we're for a nuclear-free, carbon-free future. So right, 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 right. Yeah. So so, so uh, it, there are a number of ways to look at this, but I, um, but I, I wonder for most homeowners and people who own property, financially, how reasonable is it for people to be able to think they can install solar, solar on the roofs, and what would that do? I mean, how do they do that? For a homeowner that, uh, for your average homeowner in Maryland, as long as they have uh, access to credit um, or uh, can access a loan, they're going to be able to install solar that's uh, perfectly available to a homeowner. What we're really interested in as well is making that accessible to people who don't own homes, who are renters. There's a lot of um, right. access issues right now that we're trying to improve, and that's one of the things we'll be talking about at the Congress on, on the 15th. So that, that seems to me it would take some kind of, if not public funding, some kind of tax issues and that you'd have to deal with to get people who own buildings downtown or across the state to be able to install that. And if they did install it, then isn't, am I right that, that it, does, it doesn't kind of power your house or your building? It just saves you money on your bill, right? 
It can power up to all of your electricity over the course of a year. Depends on how much space you have. You're allowed to do that. Yep, absolutely. Um, we have lots of network members who power 100% of their home throughout the year. Uh, they're generating more in the summer than the winter, but the credits that they generate cover all their usage. So when you said credits, so that means that the, the credits are going back to the, whoever the utility is. Is that correct? Right. When they're, if they're generating energy and they're not home, they'll get a credit that's equal to the value of what they would have purchased, and then they'll use that credit before they purchase more electricity from their utility. So, um, so how realistic is it, do you think, that we could have a carbon-free future? Sure. I mean, it's actually completely feasible. Um, I mean, there's been a number of technical studies that have been done over the last several years, all of which show that we've got plenty of renewable energy potential in the U.S. and that, you know, especially with the improving economics of solar and wind power and energy efficiency, um, that it would actually be a net savings, uh, you know, to consumers and businesses across the country if we actually did that. You know, it's really a question of political will at this point. Take that a bit further. What do you mean, question political will? Sure. Well, you know, I think what we've I mean, we've seen over the last you know two presidential administrations is this idea that you know the federal energy policy is an all of the above energy policy, which is really it's not it's not it's not a policy. It's a refusal to choose which way we're going to go. And you know, th- I think we all know that we've got a bunch of incumbent energy interests. You know, large corporations that are invested in nuclear and fossil fuels and you know and utilities. That you know that that have an inherent opposition to you know to this transformation of our energy system. You know, putting putting energy production in the hands of individual homeowners and communities is not something that the utility industry has ever really supported or wanted. And let's be clear about that one point, because I mean, what I've been reading in the last six months or so is, is that there's been a huge pushback from the utility industry around uh, the tax credits and more for solar panels and people installing solar because they're actually losing money. They're fearful of losing money. Sure, yeah. I mean, we've seen a lot of destructive things happen in the last couple of years as utilities have really, you know, I mean, a few years ago when rooftop solar was kind of a boutique industry right, and, you right. know, was, and wasn't growing, you know, it was, wasn't a large share of electricity in, you know, in most states. Uh, utilities, you know, kind of were going along and, you know, and, and playing along with, you know, with the, with the solar energy programs. But it's become clear in the last five years as the cost of solar has dropped like 80 percent um, in that time frame. And more and more – and it's now affordable for, as Corey said, anybody to, to, you know, to afford to put solar on their house if they can get the financing and, and the other things that are necessary. Um, you know, the, the people can basically sort of, you know, walk away from, you know, from, from their utility bill. And the utilities are really sort of pushing back on that. And so you've seen like even in states like Nevada and Arizona – where, you know, I mean, solar is, you know, by far the most abundant energy source around, that the utilities have uh, rolled back these, you know, these programs that uh, the Corey was talking about, where you get full credit for the energy you produce on your rooftop um, to make it essentially less, you know, le- less cost, of cost effective for people to, you know, to, to invest in solar. And what we've seen happen just in the last year in Nevada, where, where, they, where they've actually put that policy through, is it has literally killed the solar industry in Nevada in the course of a year. Um, so this is so. In many ways, this is. I mean, this is the, to me one of the subterranean political battles we don't see. That's why I'm, I'm so interested in this. I mean, you, other things are kind of very obvious. I mean, people are. You, you see um, the power of coal uh, and its role in this election, especially between uh, uh, Trump and Clinton in, in West Virginia, Kentucky, other places that are big coal industry places. Or, or oil and fracking is taking place around the country, Pennsylvania, and the Dakotas, you're seeing what's happening with the pipeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's very obvious, and people can watch that go on. But what's happening here is almost, you, you're not seeing it happen. 
This is this quiet campaign to really kill solar that we're not even being aware of, paying attention to. Sure, yeah. I think it does fly under the radar a lot of the time. And I think, you know, part of that has got to do with the bandwidth that, that utilities have as, you know, these big, you know, political players in every state. Right. Part of what we're doing in helping people go solar really is, is building a network of people who um, have a, a stake in the solar and the energy economy. So what we really want is an, an economy that's clean and resilient and equitable, but one that benefits everyone. So there's this concept of energy democracy that's really starting to take what hold. Is that, what does that mean, energy democracy? It's making the, the electricity system work for everybody so that they can not only consume energy but produce services for the, for the grid. It's something that's going to be necessary as we migrate to a renewable energy <coughs> economy, and that really involves – residential homeowners, um, renters, businesses, all being able to participate in both directions. And our current structure doesn't really support that, which is one of the reasons why the Grid of the Future topic is so interesting to us as a, as a network. So what? So I'm curious, when you talk about this in your, in your, in your conversations coming up in the Congress you're going to have, uh, so what, are, what, what is the politics of that grid? I mean, what, is that, what does that mean? I mean, we all know, most, many of us know that uh, our, our infrastructure, the electrical infrastructure, the grid infrastructure needs rebuilding across here in Maryland, but also across the country. So, so what is that? What is the politics of that? So right now, most people are passive consumers. They consume electricity. They pay for it. Uh, solar energy producers are one of the first categories of people uh, at the individual level who are actually producing. They're interacting with the, with the electricity system in a way that wasn't really possible before. So that creates flows of energy that go in directions that the grid was not designed for. In order to be able to support that at a larger level, there's some structural things that need to happen, not only engineering-wise, but also policy and regulatory perspective to be able to enable that to happen. And it's beneficial for it to happen. So those changes need to happen over the next couple of years, and we're starting to see that happen in Maryland. So when, when the governor vetoes the Maryland's Renewable Portfolio Standard, I mean, the effort to raise that, um, and people kind of weren't sure he was going to do that or not. I mean, he seemed to be supporting it, but then um, uh, when it came to strengthening the greenhouse gas reduction goals, that was vetoed by the governor. So, so that, that, that there is a kind of a, I mean, that, that, is, a, that is a political battle that, that's taking place, even though the majority of the Senate and the House voted yes. Sure. And I think, you know, what was interesting in the, in the, way, in the way the governor did that, um, you know, because what he said was, uh, you know, he was concerned that this was going to that this was going to increase electricity costs, um, you know, for consumers, and that he wanted to avoid that. He called it a tax in a sense. And I think, you know, what we're actually, you know, I think I think there's a lot of old style thinking that is going on, you know, among people both at the level of the governors as well as the utilities, and you know, and everywhere in between. Is you know that is this you know failure to recognize that you know look we've already got an energy affordability problem you know in you know in Maryland and throughout the country right I mean there's you know whole populations in Maryland um, that spend you know up to forty percent of their income paying their paying their energy bills which is completely unsustainable I mean it actually causes homelessness and lots of other problems that you know again you know then create other right. costs for society. Um, but you know, but the reality is that this is that this this is you know we have an energy system right now that isn't working for everyone, and so you know we have an obligation to try to fix that. And the interesting you know thing that that's you know that's 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 occurring now because solar is affordable, because renewable energy is affordable, because energy efficiency is you know is making such tremendous gains, is that we can actually solve all of these problems. You know, both the environmental problems and the affordability problems. Um, you know, the problems of 
you know, people not being able to um, to own and invest in their own energy sources um, with, you know, with, with renewable energy. And I think that's really the, you know, the really exciting thing about this grid of the future proceeding that's going to be happening at the Public Service Commission, these utility forms that are going to be taking place in the next few years, is for us to crack this nut and, you know, and, and both, you know, improve the, the, you know, the, the, the level of democracy within our energy system, uh, but also, you know, to, you know to, to make energy affordable for everyone. So, so it is difficult not to crack because it seems to me that not just the, the political and economic power of coal and oil um, and, and uh, carbon-related energy systems, which is huge, um, it also the number of people who are employed in that system and the money they make in that system as workers, that it seems in some parts the, 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 the renewable energy systems one of the arguments I've heard that the renewable energy systems cannot match the money that workers and people are paid in the other system. I mean, that, is, that, that, that always seems to be one of the bogeymen here. Well, in Maryland, I think one of the stories that it probably doesn't get enough coverage is that the solar economy in Maryland is one of the fastest sectors of the job economy. They've added thousands of jobs over the last couple of years. Uh, in many cases, good entry-level paying jobs, $20 plus an hour to install solar. And there's a, a path for them to, to proceed into inside sales and to other parts of the, uh, of the economy as it grows. So that's, uh, I think, something that doesn't get enough attention in Maryland. So, so talk about what that growth has meant. I mean, and how have you seen it? How have we seen that growth? So we see it all the time in our work because we help uh, homeowners use their buying tower to go solar at a discount. So we are regularly interacting with installers. We see them grow from small shops that have a little bit of business to be able to ramp up and add two, three, four work crews, extra sales teams in order to deal with demand that we're helping to create, but is, is being getting created through policies at the state level, and that creates jobs on a daily basis. So, I mean, for an average homeowner, what's it cost to put solar in? If you are financing it, it can cost nothing up front, but you're going to not get as much of that savings as you would if you were to pay for it. So let's say an average uh, house of uh, residential home they're gonna they're, if they were gonna pay for it in cash before any sort of incentives, it's gonna be somewhere between fifteen to twenty thousand before you get tax credits and other things that come off of that. That savings is returned many times uh, well over through the course of the twenty years, twenty five years that's on your roof. So, but, uh, so the financing actually supports that, so people don't really need to pay that up front. But yes, you obviously will have to pay it back though. <laughs> yeah, correct. Yeah, and that that affects the economics depending on right. on how long your your finance. Yeah, because it's not a small amount of money for most people in the state. I think. It's yeah, fifteen twenty thousand bucks is a lot of money. Yeah, which is why community solar, which is another thing that's happening, is really important. Is that allows people to take advantage of that, but in a smaller chunk. Um, what does that mean? The community shared solar program. It's a a pilot that's about to launch in Maryland, and that will allow people to subscribe to energy or to a portion of a system that's elsewhere in a, a size that's maybe more manageable for them. So it's one of the ways that we can increase access to solar to people in the state. And that program's about to start uh, all in three utility territories in Maryland in the next couple months. So how does that feed into the work you do uh, in terms of y y the idea of having an actual carbon-free uh, energy economy in the state? I mean, and I don't know if states can do it on their own, but how does that feed into that? Sure. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the big piece of the solution, right? I mean, part of the problem that we've got is that, you know, we have, we, we have an existing energy system and, uh, you know, the utilities are dragging their heels on modernizing that and on, and on you know, and on switching to, to renewable energy sources. So, you know, all these things that people are doing to put solar on their houses, to invest in community solar, 
um, and those sort of things are actually starting to replace um, the electricity supply, you know, even without the utilities necessarily buying into that process. Um, but With, I think without you know, them buying into the process. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think you know, I mean, we have um, rapid growth of solar in Maryland. Um, that's you know, every, every kilowatt hour of electricity that people generate on the rooftops is, you know, is a kilowatt hour less of dirty energy that's being that's being generated. Um, so you know, and you know, and I think as as solar continues to grow like that, you know, we're gonna we're gonna be reaping the benefits of cleaner air and a cleaner environment, and you know, and, and environmental health and safety, as that happens. Um, but we're reaching a point now where you know it re there really does need to be a shift in the way that in the way the utility business is run, and you know it's encouraging to see that the you know the energy regulators in Maryland have recognized that, and they're going to be starting um, uh, you know a proceeding uh, within within a couple of months to actually start making these regulatory changes, essentially to change the utility business model from being a purveyor of you know electrons to people's households and businesses um, to one of managing um, you know a, a system that includes a lot of solar and energy efficiency and you know and to make essentially the grid a, you know a, this you know energy democracy space where anybody can generate their own energy anybody can own you know their own electricity system um, and uh, and that and, and that is really going to be a, you know a more even playing field for everyone to, to participate in, in cleaning up our environment and building up our green energy economy Folks, do join us. I mean, if you're really interested in this subject, which I think many of you are, uh, the future of solar in our communities, how we get there, 410-319-8888 is the number. You can tweet us at Mark Steiner. You can log on to our Facebook pages. You can send an email to talk at steinershow.org. We've had a lot of conversations with people over the years here in this program about uh, all the kind of empty spaces inside of Baltimore City, for example, that are perfect for lots of solar, which could be a public investment that really builds community here and, and ways we're not even thinking about. I think that's something, you know, we, we always think about, I think not always think about, but often we kind of look at this, the question of solar as uh, something that is apart from communities like Baltimore City, when the ex exact opposite is reality, that can actually help transform community in this town. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why we're so excited about that community shared program I mentioned, is it's really an opportunity for communities to own and uh, invest in their own energy assets at a community level. Those regulations support it, and we're very interested in helping people do that to keep more of that economic value in the community. And also, it's, you know, one of the things that happens in Baltimore is, is the unemployment rate here is higher than the rest of the state, and that the idea of building a solar business and solar community in Baltimore also means jobs for people to learn a skill that Absolutely. is a new skill that's going to just get bigger and, and become... A more and the more necessary skill to have in this in the future. Yeah, well, and the other thing, you know, the, the other part to that too, right, is that you know, I mean, as up up until now, you know, we're getting almost all of our electricity from coal and from nuclear right. and natural right. gas, which is a ton of money that con that Baltimore and you know Maryland consumers are paying. That is going mostly to out-of-state businesses, right? To coal mines in you know in, in Kentucky and to uranium mines in Kazakhstan and um, and the, you know and and to nuclear corporations headquartered in Chicago. Um, as opposed to, um, you know, being able to invest in businesses that are creating jobs in the local community, providing electricity that is generated locally, supplied locally, and is more efficient and, you know, and cleaner. And so this is really an opportunity, you know, for our energy dollars in Maryland to build up the economy in Maryland. And what are the, let me go to the phones here. But one of the few places I know that's really doing that in a very serious way in terms of urban America is Washington, D.C. That's really pushing an alternative energy future for the, for the, for the capital. 
not the federal government, I'm talking about the city government yep. itself is actually doing that. We'll, t- we'll talk about that in a minute. Let's go to the phones at 410-319-8888. Tom, you're on the air. Welcome. Oh, morning, Mark, and, and to your guest also. I was wondering if your guest could comment on the feasibility of uh, using groundwater, which is 50 degrees year-round, for heating and cooling uh, as a supplement to solar energy. That's an interesting question. It's a great question. I, it's not my area of expertise, but I have heard of other of uh, projects who have tried to do that. Um, I understand there's some probably some issues with the um, water supply for uh, the utility system from doing that. But uh, f- physically speaking, I, it's certainly something that could be possible. Ground source heat pumps are, are becoming more popular as well. So um, uh, did, could you talk a bit about what's going on in D.C.? Uh, yeah, I think with we, the mayor? a little bit. Yeah, we so the. It's, I spend most of my time in Maryland, but the D.C. program is, I think, a really exciting one uh, because of the circle they're trying to create. They're, the renewable portfolio standard in D.C., which is similar to the Maryland one, encourages solar. Some of the proceeds from that move to a renewable economy are actually enabling large areas, uh, large numbers of uh, low-income homeowners to install solar, reduce permanently reduce their electricity bill. And uh, that's something they're really spending a lot of time on is making sure that that transition is equitable and just and is available across all sectors of the D.C. population. So why is that impossible for us to do that here? I don't think it is. (laughs) I think it just requires the political will to do that. We're very interested in seeing that expanse and increase to uh, access to lower other parts of the population that don't can't currently access. Because I think that given the state of the economy, given the state of of where many people's income are in in the state, the reality of that, I mean, that's kind of necessary. We have to, that's part of, I think, part of the political dialogue we haven't kind of created, whether in Annapolis or Baltimore or, or anywhere in the state so far. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, we like I said before, I mean, we have a real problem with energy affordability in Maryland. And, you know, and low-income people are, you know, are, are impacted more than anybody else, obviously. But, you know, there's a lot of, you know, as we saw a couple of years ago, right, with the polar vortex and, you know, winter energy prices skyrocketed um, because of our dependence on, you know, on fossil fuels. And it didn't help that our nuclear plant shut down because of icing issues at the same time and, you know, and, and, and made, it made that worse. But you, you don't want that plant there anyway. Well, I mean, for lots of reasons, but you know, but that, but that certainly became one of them. Um, but, um, but you know, I mean, if, when you think about it, in terms of you know, and, and then you know, with with uh, DC, I think a lot of D, a lot of the policies in DC are stemming from uh, from the derecho storm that happened a few years ago, and and the you know the week long power outage that resulted right. from that. Right, right, and right. you know, and and you know, and the recognition by a lot of people in DC that you know, if DC had had more solar power online. Um, that the cooling centers, you know, could have operated better, and you know, and, and helped, you know, and helped mitigate the impact of that, and 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 enabled people to to get back into their homes, you know, a lot quicker than they had, and so you know, in part, what we're what we're also looking at is, you know, being able to you know to make the electricity system more reliable and safer for people, and that's going to be increasingly important, you know, as climate change advances and we get these severe storms that are you know that are going to be stressing our infrastructure a lot more. You know, this is really an opportunity to modernize our whole electricity system. And you know now's the time to do it, right? Because mm-hmm. you know, the energy, the the electric, the energy system that we have right now is a hundred years old, right? I mean, it was designed a hundred years ago, but right. the, but the but the you know but the wires and the pipes and everything haven't been upgraded in decades, and so you know this and that was as Corey mentioned before a system that was designed you know as a one way system where the where you know Baltimore Gas and Electric owned a power plant. And they use that power plant and the power lines to you know to funnel electricity one way to people's houses. Now we have the opportunity with solar power and all of these other technologies that are that are affordable and available now, 
to make you know to, to change the whole way that we operate and, and to make you know if you can if you can make electricity locally even on your rooftop um, and you know and redesign the grid um, in a way that you know in a way that that is protective against you know against the impacts of storms um, with energy storage and other sorts of things then what we've got is actually the ability you know to um, to save lives and to, and, 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 to, and to make the recovery from from these severe weather events more you know more more manageable so I mean both of you do think of I mean, it Oh, I'm sorry about that, folks. Uh, so, so that uh, it's it, it. So both of you really do um, believe that we locally can can address this issue. Uh, that we can really make a dent. Absolutely. In our future. Yeah, it's uh, we've seen it happen uh, slowly all over the country. It's increasing uh, in a, in popularity, solar in particular, but uh, other forms as well. And uh, we fully expect that it's possible all across the country to make this transition. I, I'm really excited. I hope you guys will come back for a longer conversation, really get into this, and I maybe kind of think that I should actually we should call the D.C. Mayor's office and have her on to talk about what they're doing in Washington to give people a sense of what the possibilities are, uh, and they really are they do exist. Corey Ramsden is program director for the Maryland Solar United Neighborhoods. Tim Judson is executive director, executive director of the Nuclear Information and Resource Service working for a nuclear-free world. He'll be presenting a workshop at the Solar Congress, and the Maryland Solar Congress will take place Saturday, October 15th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the Annapolis Friends Meeting House, 351 Dubois Road uh, in Annapolis. More information at mdsun.org. That's mdsun.org. And we'll also have that on the website. Gentlemen, it's great to have you in the studio. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. On our way to break, I want to remind you from school funding uh, to testing you can learn more about the important issues affecting Maryland students, parents, and schools by visiting the Maryland State Education Association's website at MarylandEducators.org. That's MarylandEducators.org. Or Steinershow.org is the Maryland State Education Association's banner. We'll be right back. Look at World Food Day and food independence here in our community. Stay with us. Welcome back, folks. Good to have you with us here on the Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And welcome back to Sound Bites, where we can look at food, farming, our environment, and our energy future. Uh, and on our way to this conversation, I'll remind you, the Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites are brought to you in part by MeQ Baltimore's Credit Union. Offering a full range of financial services, MeQ Baltimore's Credit Union is how it gets members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. Remember, it's a credit union, not just a bank. belongs to you, and money comes back in the end. More information at www.mecu.com or at steinershow.org is MeQ, Baltimore Credit Union's banner. World Food Day is upon us, and we're going to have an interesting conversation about what that means in our community. Eric Jackson's in the house, Serving Director of the Black Yield Institute. Always good to see you. Welcome back to the program, Eric. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you, Mark. And we'll be joined shortly by the Reverend Dr. Heber Brown III, who's coming in the studio in just a moment. He's founding director of the Black Church Food Security Network and Orita's Cross Freedom School, which is an amazing school, and pastor of the Pleasant Hope Baptist Church. Oh, there he is, and a frequent guest on the Steiner Show. Good to see you, Heber. Welcome. Thank you so much. Always good to see you. Likewise. And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888. You can also uh, log on to our Facebook page. You can tweet us at Mark Steiner. Send us an email to talk at steinershow.org. Uh, and Independence Day at World Food Day will take place uh, Sunday, October 16th 
uh, at the Plessner Hill Baptist Church, is why we're here talking about that and more. And gentlemen, great to see you both. Thanks so much for the invitation. Good to see you. So yeah, I mean, you've been busy, Eric, since we last talked to each other. So talk about what's what's what is th- this unity thing here between the two of you, and what you are, are what y'all are plotting away. <laughs> well, you got it. Yeah. So um, we are, and we have been actually working together. Just a, a very quick digression. Um, we've been working together very intimately on uh, building a Reader's Cross Freedom School, um, and I'll let. Uh, Reverend oh, I didn't know you were involved in Reader's that. Cross as well. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, this is it, we're, oh, okay. we're to, uh, institution building. Uh, this is good. But, yeah, yeah, so yeah. since, yeah. since, uh, since I've been on the, um, on the show, we've just really been building out um, programmatically how we can move to uh, black food land and food sovereignty in our city and um, really just reaching out and connecting. And this is, uh, we'll talk, I know, a little more about it later around what we intend to do and what the event and press conference's uh, purpose and goals are. But we've, we literally have been connected and even, you know, connected uh, very uh, softly, so to speak, before, you know, um, Black Yield Institute's uh, launch. But we're, um, we're just doing the work and recognizing that institution building is what we need to do and, uh, and a collective struggle to um, achieve black liberation is the only way to do it. You can't do it in silos. So we've been working together and um, kind of the first public event that, that it'll, it'll kind of happen together. But we've been behind the scenes working together all along. So Reverend Brown, always good to have you here. Good to see you, my Thank friend. Thank you, man. Good always to be home. Good <laughs> <laughs> so talk, I mean, so what is a Rita's Cross Freedom School have to do with what you're talking about with, a, uh, with, with food sovereignty and Get into that mm-hmm. moment and may, maybe, and also just remind our listeners what this school is. Absolutely. So, everybody I know who goes there loves this school, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we probably love it more than the children. Yeah, it yeah. Is, uh, <laughs> it's a great experience. And so, your listeners, uh, Mark, um, will be very familiar with the Freedom School history in this country and the ways in which um, Freedom Schools became a part of Freedom Summer. Uh, back then in the 60s and in Mississippi and other points in the South. A lot of white college students go South. They follow leadership of local black folk in the Southern right. towns and do a whole lot around voter registration and the like. And these freedom schools was a part of that program and process of just not just uh, voter registration education, but also as I studied freedom schools, there were classes on black history. There were classes on uh, geography classes on, and so they created the schools that they needed, the schools that could respond to their needs, their desires, interests, and context. And so, what I did about four and a half years ago now is just take that concept and look at present day context and create a new school. So, Aritas Cross Freedom School is an African centered um, uh, youth program that's open when Baltimore City Public Schools are closed. Um, not only do we focus on African heritage and black history, but we also focus a lot on self-reliance. And so uh, the self-reliance aspect of that means that we have a um, youth herbalism program. We have a clinical herbalist that teaches our young people how to make elderberry syrup and fire cider and everything. And it's great when you can get eight, <laughs> nine and 10 year olds sitting around a yeah. table <laughs> creating, you know, using herbs to create what they need and yeah, yeah. being told about a time. Um, when their elders and ancestors didn't have Rite Aids and Mm -hmm. CVS on every corner, and you had to have the knowledge of nature in order Mm -hmm. to heal heal yourself. And so the youth herbalism programs, we're we're growing little herbalists in our program. Uh, Of course, in addition to that, uh, we have a sewing program. So we have young people learning how to sew. Um, I came up in a school where we had home ec 
uh, home, mm-hmm. home economics. And I know a lot of schools today don't have home economics, so, uh, but we have sewing machines, and the young people are learning how to sew, um, and we're learning how to make bags and shirts and our attire to get, again, in that spirit of self-reliance and doing for yourself. And the food is a critical part of that as well. As you know, Mark, at Pleasant Hope Baptist Church, we have Maxine's Garden. Yes, you do. And for the past <laughs> five years, this garden has been growing. Didn't I love have, walking past that garden. Thank you so much. <laughs> it, it, it really is a, a blessing and a, and a beacon, I think, to that block and to our community. Last year, we grew 900 pounds of produce wow. on a garden a little bit larger than the size of your studio. And right, it was I know. Just it's not that big a spot. It's not that big a spot at all. We just have these beautiful black folk who came up during the Great Migration, mm-hmm. who grew up in the Carolinas and Florida and Georgia, and who know how to work land. So mm-hmm. partnering their wisdom with young people's uh, uh, energy and zeal, uh, the Freedom School um, has food as a very critical part of all that we do as well because you're talking about self-reliance, you're talking about doing for self. Well, how are you going to do for self if you can't feed yourself? Mm-hmm. And so that's where the tie and the connection with uh, World Food Day comes in. Our young people at Freedom School study and learn about the politics of food. Mm-hmm. Uh, they learn the culinary and the art of food. They're in the church kitchen learning from people like uh, Denzel Mitchell and so many others who you had on the show and Wonderful. in the community. He's on the show a lot, an incredible farmer. And, they're t- and he's teaching, along with others, uh, Sasha, who was formerly working in Park Heights. Yeah, yep. They're teaching the, the next generation of farmers and mm-hmm. culinary artists. And so just being very intentional about grooming uh, the next uh, batch of genius that's rising up all around us. And so World Food Day has a great tie to Aretha's Cross Freedom School because it really does, and the end, the end Dependence event has a great tie. Yeah, talk about what that means, end yeah. dependence. What are we talking about here? Yeah, yeah so that, that vision came out of um, really, like I said, having a, a public um, event where uh, black institutions, including uh, the family as an institution, uh, religious institutions, um, agriculture and farming as an institution, and businesses, you know, uh, black business as an institution, um, and folks coming together to really lift up um, a message that we declare that this is the beginning of the end of depending on uh, other groups and other people to feed the black community in Baltimore City. And last time I was on the show and many times over um, on the show, sound bites and otherwise we've talked about the statistics. We don't need to, you know, uh, bore the listeners with uh, the, the stats, but we know um, with one stat, just one, that in doing the numbers that um, 87% of the people who experience food insecurity are people of African descent. And so in a city that's also, I'm sorry, it's two statistics. Uh, you have as many as you want, man. It's okay. Um, that uh, 63.8% black uh, should be the majority, right? Uh, should, we believe, uh, struggle together to uh, address this problem. We know that it's not just a black problem, but uh, we know that it's imp- impacting people of African descent um, uh, disproportionately. And so we already know uh, those impacts. And so our... Um, goal for, you know, the Independence Day event really is to celebrate black institutions and to stand in solidarity with one another to to declare and to openly um, issue a call to action that we move collectively. Because we recognize that there are folks who are doing good work, whether they're growing food, uh, selling food, you know, producing food. But in in many cases, we're not, um, you know, moving in the direction together. And so this is really our attempt to 
lift up one, celebrate each other, and celebrate what we do through, you know, um, we'll have a farm stand, Black Dirt Farm Collective will be there selling some food. They're also uh, producing uh, some food that they that will be a part of a cook-off that we have, competition that's judged by youth. Um, but you know, games. Uh, they'll be cooking off mustard <laughs> greens, mustard <laughs> greens, and uh, and sweet potatoes. So I've you know kind of asked some folks who are in the community that we spoke about before. You know, uh, Denzel, Sasha. Can I bring my uh, sweet potato Kristen. recipe? If wow. you want to do that too, yeah, <laughs> and we'll we'll do that. Sweet potatoes. You can do either or, whichever work. Um, it just needs to be you know appealing to youth because they're your judges. So, uh, so that's so that's that's kind of the caveat. So we'll we'll have some games and some some uh, exercises that are family oriented, um, but it really is about celebration. And it's a three hour event. The first two hours we'll have a community meal, those competition judges, you know, judges having a good time, and then the last hour will be um, our press conference where we'll speak to the issue and speak to how we um, intend to work together. And, uh, you know, have opportunities for folks to ask questions and to engage in dialogue as well. So so when you leaping off from what you just said about the press conference taking place. Um, so what is the plan and idea? We talked about this earlier, I know, a bunch of months back yeah. um, about about how to create this food security network and how to really create a farming system in the city and what we can expect from that farming system. Yeah. yeah. I, I just want to say one thing. I think. Uh, I don't know if I said it last time we were on the show. One of the things I believe that we have to do um, is to take inventory in what we have first. Um, some people call it an asset map or what have you, but really looking at what we have and acknowledging from a strength-based perspective what we already have in terms of institutions and organizations that are already doing the work. And so that's first. And then also you know, taking note of what we do not have. And so I believe that that can happen in the context of a um, a council for you know black land and food sovereignty and in fact um, I've you know kind of communicated with some folks who are in working in and doing organizing in food system and food movement locally to come together today actually at Renaissance High School and we will be um, connecting and really beginning the process of visioning what black land and food sovereignty looks like to us and um, really lifting up to one another what our commitments are there. And I believe that we need to, um, it is my vision to have these groups working together, have us uh, working and moving toward developing a plan um, of a plan of action that moves toward land and food sovereignty that's measurable, that we can, um, everybody has accountability and that um, we can look back to on a quarterly and annual basis and figure out where we are and moving toward those goals that we establish. Um, and the premise really is that bl black land and food sovereignty is not just gonna happen. We have to move towards it. So we have to plan for right. it and we have to have these uh, structures of accountability and community building so that we make sure that we're moving in that direction. And so that's uh, at least one of the, the, the key things that we're, that are that's an actionable item. And if folks are interested that they can get in touch with, um, you know, Reverend Dr. Brown uh, or myself, to figure out how they can loop into that. So, folks, do join us, 410-319-8888, to leap into this conversation here with Eric Jackson and the Reverend Dr. Heber Brown, 410-319-8888. Um, Eric Jackson, again, is serving director of the Black Hill Institute, and, of course, Reverend Heber Brown uh, is Pleasant Hope Baptist Church, but also is the founding director of the Black Church Food Security Network and a Reader's Cross Freedom School 
Um, and so, um, if we're going to have food security in the city, yeah, and have it not just be a pipe dream, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It, a, it takes land, mm-hmm. it takes some money, yep. but it does take land, yeah, absolutely, and some investment. So, yeah. how does that happen? Yeah, uh, so building off what Eric shared, um, th- that's where the focus and work of the Black Church Food Security Network comes in. Um, those two pieces you just said are uh, so critical and crucial, Mark. Land, uh, and some money, resource, some investment, right? does take some, some investment, investment of money, right? uh, people, and people. Right, and people, absolutely. And right. when you consider uh, the history of the black church, the black church, what is it? It's land, <laughs> it's money, and it's people. people yes, yeah. uh, you know, and so the Black Church Food Security Network just seeks to uh, bring greater organization and really remembrance to what churches um, were more centrally involved in when it came to agriculture, when it came to food and meeting some of those material needs. Uh, agriculture and food and food growing is no new topic when it comes to the black church. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we're seeking to do with the network is just um, – you know, revive that uh, emphasis and that uh, focus, and then organize the land, the people, and the resources to begin to attack and to engage the issue around food sovereignty in the city, in a city like Baltimore, which I think is perfectly positioned. Mm-hmm. Um, when you talk about Baltimore, you're talking about a city that either has a liquor store or a black church on almost every corner, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. if you can just organize the churches <laughs> yeah. uh, to come together, some churches have land. And so there might be church leaders listening. You have land like like Pleasant Hope Church. And we don't have, as Mark said, we don't have acres upon acres. We have a small plot that mm-hmm. we focus on that plot. So if you have land, then we have uh, partners in the network and then Black Yield and beyond Uh, who can help you develop that land somebody will say well we don't have land at our church but we have space okay Uh, we can help bring produce bring food to your space Uh, (laughs) for others they'll say you know we don't have land we don't have space uh, but we have uh, resources that we want to help with Uh, i'm also interested mark in connecting those more financially resourced churches that might be in the outer skirts of the city or in the suburbs even, that, right, 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 right. They come on in. Somebody say, what's called the black church food? Can white churches help? Sure. They cut <laughs> a check, help to get uh, some support behind mm-hmm. this effort. Now, why? The question, the question might be raised, why black church food security network? Because the issue of autonomy is important, mm-hmm. right? If the, the angle of benevolence, we have, we have, you know, we rode this train of benevolence and charity, I think, for as long as we can ride it, right? Because we don't see the material conditions on the ground changing at the same pace that we're investing in the charitable, benevolent aspect. There needs to be a different arm on this thing. And it makes me, it brings to mind one of my favorite shows called Shark Tank. I love this show called Shark Tank. Some of y'all, you know, watch Shark Tank. <laughs> and as business owners and the entrepreneurs come and stand before oh, right. these multimillionaires, right, right. they pitch their idea and see if they can get money from the millionaires. Well, the entrepreneur wants the money. Um, what does the multimillionaire want? They want equity. Mm-hmm. They want control. Mm-hmm. They want a piece of the control of the operation. And when I analyze in my short days in this city, um, and organizing and active, is when I analyze where we are and why we are, I think it does come down to control. I think it comes to the issue of if not just food access, but who arranges or who controls the access to the food, who who controls yes, the policy, who controls the programs, mm-hmm. who controls. And if people who are most directly affected by these issues are not at the table of deciding how it should go, 
I really just think, you know, that the program will not go as far as it should. So, I mean, it seems that we, you know, the last segment we, we did a piece. <laughs> Amen. So, so the, the last segment we did a piece on solar, and one of the things I raised mm. about solar energy uh, with the gentleman who here for the conference they're having in Annapolis was that if you look at what Mayor Browser is doing in Washington, D.C., she's pushing alternative energy mm -hmm. in a major way, mm -hmm. yeah. right, to build solar. And I, you think of, of uh, the investments we make in Baltimore on places like... Um, Port Covington. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if you think about the investments that could be made um, in, you pick a neighborhood. Right. Right? Pick any neighborhood. You, right. you know, Sandtown, you can, uh, Rose National, but you just pick a neighborhood. Yeah. Right. Right. That, that where there is land and open, the kind of community could be built, both in terms of growing food yeah. year round in hoop houses and greenhouses, mm -hmm. as well as digging in the dirt. Right. Raising chickens as well, whatever mm -hmm. you want to raise, because you can. You're allowed to raise chickens in Baltimore. You don't realize you can raise. Yes. You can't have roosters, right. but you can raise chickens. Right. Mm -hmm. And you know the the, 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 the or fish, mm -hmm. um, as well. And having a solar panels and building a community that can actually make a living off of that, and yeah. and get the skills involved in that, mm -hmm. and build community again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that it's it's it sounds crazy and utopian, but. You t you're talking about Mark going back to as you said. You know, really, it's about remembrance. I mean, that's. You know, that's how communities are developed, whether it's around uh, um, a local economy or whatever, you, what have you. You have the resources, as you say, at land, right? You have the resources in terms of people. And then, you know, money, w one could argue from, you know, a scarcity perspective that we don't have enough money. And I would say, uh, one, that it's not true, but two, that we... Um, that it really, I know folks who literally who would put money into it because I've, I've worked with folks in Sandtown um, and in Harlem Park who, who are beginning to do this work. But also going back to a point that you talked about in terms of policy, uh, that's the piece that we have and those are the allies that we have um, on the, the city level who are really thinking through how to create a food system that is more equitable and to echo the point that, that um, you know, uh, Reverend Dr. Brown you know, spoke to, is you know really leveraging those resources and skills that uh, white allies and institutions uh, want to do that, but that ultimately uh, people of African descent are the people who are controlling those those things. So I'm not looking at that. I want to yeah. try. We're almost out of time. I want to try to get some callers. They're calling in. I want to get some voices on here. Let, let's go to Hank. You're on the air. Hank, welcome. Good, good to have you back. Hi, Hank. You there? Do we get Hank? All right, Warren. You're on the air. Hi, Mark. How are you? Very well. And Pastor Brown, how are you? I'm doing well. Good. Hey, Mark, you know, I mean, uh, well, through your guests and all, I wasn't aware of all these events that are going on. I am a farmer in the urban city. And, uh, this, is Warren, this is Warren Blue, who is one of the greatest farmers yes. in, yeah. that I've ever met. So, Warren, yeah, all right. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Warren. We just finished erecting four hoop houses on our property this year, and I'll just start to plant them. And the purpose of those hoop houses was for us to grow, to generate money during the year, but also we set up a program along with uh, the University of and Extension Service where we'd be involved with 4-H clubs to come over to have to teach these kids how food is grown and how to grow it and how to harvest it, uh, even during the wintertime and whatnot, you know. And we, we went to the hoop houses or going more hoop houses because of the weather. It's just so reverse that sometimes you just can't plant, you can't grow. Sometimes it's going to work. So we decided to go this route through some grants and through our own money. And 
we are looking at that to be a success, you know. But the main thing is to help to teach kids and adults how food is grown, what goes into the process of going through and how to harvest. Also, part of that teaching would be for food storage, how to freeze, how to can, and other different things, you know. So uh, we're, we're, we're looking forward for that, and I've been in, in trying to get involved with the Black Food Network for the churches, but uh, I just haven't got there yet, but uh, it's, it's on my mind. It's, it's, it's there. Warren Blue, it's always good to hear your voice and, and look forward to getting back on the air with us. We spent a lot of time at his farm here, just not far from Morgan State University. That's right. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that, that, that Warren talked about here, and I think that might be interesting to really explore in a major way, yeah. is his idea of creating a 4-H club for black children in the city. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, that, that really teaches the skills. I mean, you have between the people you mentioned, Denzel and Sasha yeah. and Warren yeah. and, and the Blues collectively, yeah. Yeah. to have those kind of teachers teaching young people yeah. how to farm, I mean, that could be a revolution yes. in its own. I think right? so. I mean, and I think we have the pieces of it, too. Even with the Freedom School, um, Aaliyah is no stranger to the Freedom School. Right. Uh, right. Sasha's not, Sasha was teaching this summer in Freedom School. So I think we're building a pipeline mm-hmm. where that, you know, the spring springboard for that can erupt into a 4-H club. No, we didn't get to Hank, one of our callers, yeah. who, who's a hack in town and, and a really interesting man. He mm. calls the show all the time. But Hank is growing fish and has an entire water uh, hydroponic garden in his community in Greenmount mm-hmm. where he's growing gr- growing stuff. I mean, there are people doing things that are not connected. They're not right? connected. No, I'll help, I'll help exactly. make the connections here. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, we need that. If nothing else. And, and, and then you've got um, uh, um, people we know in Sandtown, yeah, and it's not a legal operation, so I would, I'm not going to have the, the brother busted because he's doing good stuff. Mm-hmm. But he is growing tilapia in his basement mm-hmm. that he feeds the community with, mm-hmm. right? Wow! So that stuff is happening. That right. stuff is happening, right? So the connecting these dots, yeah, it, we can create something Absolutely. in this town that maybe you know that that because all these other urban networks that have happened feed rich people and feed restaurants. They, do. they, yes. they don't feed people. And yeah. it, need, it needs to happen from, from the margins. We, we don't need to know who, the names or the operations. Right, just, right, right. Just tell, us, just tell us where to find. Tell the corner to find. I mean, because that's, that's the work that needs to happen. I think that that's how it's going to work. And any substantial change happens, you know, uh, in the margins. Um, right. it, it's my belief. And yet the, I think the thing, and of course, I'm super biased. I'm Pastor Heber Brown. I'm super biased. But take the religious, spiritual stuff away from the church for a minute. Just, you know, anybody got issues with Jesus, sometimes I do too. It's cool. Just take all of that stuff out the way. And just look from an organized, through an Mm -hmm. organizing lens. Having that entity, that sustainable entity, near the heart or at the heart of these kind of connections, I think will help to uphold it when things get rough. Because... From the little bit that I know about agriculture, you can have big season and you can have low season. Right. And that fluctuation mm-hmm. really can make or break a farm. Yeah. But when you have an institution that is practicing cooperative economics, collecting mm-hmm. money every seven days, yeah. that has autonomy to decide where those resources can go, that has space that can open up to hold press conferences and raise children in a freedom school, if that's a part of this network, this broad network that, of course, goes beyond the church, but if it's a part of the network, I think it can help hold it so that the brother growing in the basement, if if the people, if the man start knocking on the door, mm-hmm. when you got some churches behind you, wait a minute, you're not gonna you're not gonna mess exactly. up our brother. Yeah. Or you have the you know, Hank with his you know, whoever might be happening. So reaching for the margins is important and having these institution bases mm-hmm. that are sustainable also can help make sure that the network keeps going, whether or not 
any foundation chooses to fund. Yeah. And, and it's not necessarily all, to, all together against that, but yeah. it's just about making sure that the arrangement between funder and fundee, that arrangement you know, is not sustainable in the long haul. And just to one one point about the uh, that is literally the security and food security, right? You know, and con- the control and food sovereignty that not necessarily that you have to depend on other people, but you can if you want to. And I think that that's where it happens that we actually secure sustainability and not just access to food. Well, I, I want to encourage folks to take advantage of this. The end Dependence Day at the World Food Day 2016 will take place on Sunday. October 16th from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Pleasant Hope Baptist Church here in Baltimore, and we will be giving you that information during the course of next week as well, so you can get there and, and be part of that. Uh, thank you, Eric Jackson, Servant Director of Black Hill Institute. Always good to see you, Eric. Thank you, Always. thank you. The Reverend Dr. Heber Brown III, Founding Director of the Black Church Food Security Network and Aritas Cross Freedom School and Pastor of the Pleasant Hope Baptist Church. Always good to see you, Brother. Always. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate thank you. you. And thank you all for writing and calling and being part of the show today. It's always great to have you with us. Reminding you of the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, our production of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Tom Creek Foundation. Our senior producer is Mark Henry. Our producer is Imani Spence. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our intern is Calvin Perry. Our theme music is by Wall Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talkatsteinershow.org. The podcast Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends. Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. <laughs>